question for you this morning, what I think is a good question that in one sense has really easy answers and in another sense has really hard answers, but a good question for all of us to answer, whether you're an adult here, whether you're a child here, whether you've been in church your whole life, whether this is the first time you've set foot in a church building. And the question is this, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Again, it's kind of a loaded question. But it's something that we sometimes easily distort. What does it mean to be a Christian? Is it to ask Jesus into your heart? Is it something you're born into? You know, my family's Christians, uh, I must be a Christian. Is it something that you work for, something that you accomplish on your own volition? What, what does it mean to be a Christian? Is it something inward and personal? Or is it something radical that changes everything? These are good questions to ask. And an important lens that we look through as we approach God's word, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, to be a Christian is to come face to face with God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, to be aware of who he is, what he is doing, and what he has done. God is holy. He is perfect. And he created us in his image to be like him. But from the beginning of humanity, we have fallen. We have wanted to make ourselves Lord of our lives. And so to think that we're born into being a Christian or born into this right relationship with God, we we can't say that. It's been distorted because of of who we are and, and what we've done, our brokenness, our fallenness. Sin entered the world. And because of that, There's a chasm between us and God. But God knew that we couldn't work ourselves to righteousness. We couldn't be good enough. And so in his mercy, he sent his son, Jesus, into the world as a human, as a man, fully God and fully man. We sang that, fullness of God in helpless faith. gift of love and righteousness scorned by the one once that he came to save he came lived a perfect life yet died the death that we deserve and he did that so that we could be made righteous that that he would trade places with us that he would exchange his righteousness for our wrongs he bore the weight of sin so that we could know peace with god and so what does it mean to be a christian it means to be saved from the the due punishment that we deserve. It is a work of God in our hearts, and it is to turn from our sin, turn from our old ways, and trust in Christ alone for salvation. That's what it means to be a Christian. We cannot save ourselves, and we can't even save one another. It's God who does the saving work. Jared Wilson is a professor and author, and uh, when he was pastoring a church, uh, a visitor came in and kind of sarcastically said to him, oh, you're the pastor, so you're the guy with all the answers. Jared said, no, I'm the guy who points to that guy. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't save ourselves, and even by sharing the gospel, we don't save others. Maybe we're the channel of how the gospel gets to those ears, but it's God who saves, God alone who saves. 
And so this is the gospel. When we say gospel, we mean good news. That's what gospel means. This is the good news of how we as broken people could be made right with God. And so it matters that we get the gospel right. It matters that we get the gospel right. And rightly understood, it should change us. And so we can kind of follow that trail of questions. Uh, What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it's not, we're not saved by our works or our actions or our lives, but we are saved, and so now our lives should change. The gospel should shape who we are. The gospel should change everything. The gospel does change everything when we rightly understand the good news of the gospel. And so our big idea this morning from Ephesians 4, 17 through 32 is God calls us to live a gospel-shaped life. God calls us to live a gospel-shaped life. That sounds a little catchphrasy. You've probably seen that on the front of a book. You know, the gospel-shaped life, something like that. But this is important. It matters that we get the gospel right. And as you'll see, or if you read in advance the passage that we're going through this morning, there's a lot of Paul writing to the church in Ephesus saying, don't do this, stop doing this, and do this, start doing this. But I want to, you know, hit it off at the pass. This is not moralism. This is not going through and wrestling with, well, here's how we earn salvation, or here's how we be good enough. We've already established we cannot be good enough by our works. Yet Paul spends a good portion of this letter exhorting the Ephesians to live in light of the gospel, to live a gospel-shaped life. And so as we look through this list, don't slip into a moralistic understanding of just being good enough or earning salvation somehow. We need to, we need to put our gospel glasses on and look through those lenses to understand rightly the good news of the gospel and how it shapes our life. Tim Keller gives an illustration. He talks about a piece of steel. And if you bend it, it might just spring back into the shape that it was in. Or if you bend it, it might eventually, you try that enough times, it might just snap. So what we're not talking about this morning is bending our lives to the gospel. We're talking about shaping our lives to the gospel. That the gospel would heat up our lives and our hearts, that it would give us renewal and that our lives would change. That our lives would be then shaped and molded and formed by the gospel, not just bent to good behavior, not just bent to ethical living. We are to be shaped by the gospel. Let's hear God's word. Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. 
to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is God's word for us this morning. Paul gives us a metaphor here of this putting off and putting on. Kind of makes me think of this idea of, of taking off and putting on clothes. Clothes are identifiable. You have an identity. There are people here who work a lot of different careers, and a lot of these careers have identifiable uniforms. And so uh, police officers, firefighters, nurses, astronauts. We don't have any astronauts here that I know of, but pilots. We have a pilot. Um, but we have identifiable careers that their, their uniform matches their, their job. And so they, you know, I'm going to just point them out. Mike is a pilot, but when he puts, and he's still a pilot even right now, but when he puts on his pilot gear, then he's identifiable. He's put on the uniform that matches his job. And so it's not a perfect illustration when we connect it to the clothing metaphor, but I do think it's helpful as we think about what it means to put on a gospel-shaped life. This putting on, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus. He's writing to Christians, but he's still talking about this active work of putting on this uniform, putting on the gospel-shaped life. He's saying, you, are, you know Christ. He says that, but, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So he's assuming they've heard the gospel, but he's saying, put on this uniform of a gospel-shaped life. And so first we see here that the gospel-shaped life is a renewed life. That's the first truth we find in our passage this morning about what the gospel-shaped life looks like. The gospel-shaped life is a renewed life. Says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He contrasts this with, uh, we remember, the beginning of chapter 4. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And now he says, you should no longer, you must, not should, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. This is not a racial dig at Gentiles. Again, who's he writing to? The saints in Ephesus, a huge Gentile audience. And he spent a lot of time already talking about how they are members of the same body. That they are 
citizens of the same kingdom, that the gospel is the same good news for all people. So this isn't a dig at, at the fact that they're Gentiles and not Jews. This is saying that's your old way of life. Your primary identity is in Christ. And so don't continue living in the futility that they were living in. This word futility makes us think of meaninglessness. Ecclesiastes type, all is meaningless, all is futile. And that's what he's saying this old life is like, the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is the futility of the old life. There's a level of ignorance. If you truly understand the gospel, it must change the way you live. It demands a response. To not respond to the gospel is to not understand the gospel. There's a level of ignorance here. And if we truly understand the gospel, how could we ever ignore it? They're simply missing the good news. There's a darkness of understanding. And so this is the futility of the old life. It's a hard and calloused heart. It's not just ignorance. We can't just plead ignorance. And I don't know. There's a hardness of heart there. We're refusing to see. There's a darkness, but we put the, the scales over our own eyes. We harden our own hearts. And this is the picture we see of unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin, whether someone who does not profess to be a Christian or someone that even professes to be a Christian, unrepentant sin is being confronted with truth from God's word and turning the other way. To come to this crossroads is to say, is Jesus Lord of my life? Or are the, the pleasures and comforts of this life Lord of my life? That's the crossroads between the old life and the new life. And we see that this isn't something that's just slipped into. It says the old life gives itself up. Gives itself up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The old life sees the beautiful banquet meal of the gospel and gives itself up to go outside and eat the rancid pig slop. This is the hopelessness of sin. We bumped into this many times as we were even through the first 10 Psalms. The hopelessness and futility of sin. We fall into the pit that we dug ourselves. This is misdirected self-help to try to seek the pleasures and comforts of the world. Why are there so many self-help books? Because we desperately need help. But why are there so many self-help books? Because they don't work. At least they don't get us help in the ultimate way that we desperately need help. And so Paul counters. He says, you must no longer walk this old way. And then verse 20, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. To learn Christ is to learn the gospel. He's essentially saying, you know better. You know better. 
this message of the gospel, this message that they've heard. It's not futility, it's not darkness, it's not ignorance, it's not hard-heartedness, it's not a calloused life. That's not how you learn Christ. To truly grasp the gospel is to have a renewed life. The gospel-shaped life is a life of freedom. But what do we see freedom as? What does our heart really gravitate toward? Why is it that clickbait advertisers promise freedom in a million different ways? You wouldn't believe how this couple at 32 retired on a beach and, I don't know, that's what we're after. That's what we think freedom is. You won't believe this single mom makes six digits working three hours of the week doing what she loves. You know, we see, you know these clickbait advertisements, right? I got an email this morning that said, congrats, you've, you know, lucky email got 2.7 million euros. I don't know why they picked that number or why it was in euros, but that's what I got. And I, whoa, wow, that's good news. This is the futility of our minds to, to fall into these traps. But this is not how you learned Christ. This is not the gospel. There's nothing good about that good news. And so it's as if Paul is shouting in our ear and shouting in the Ephesians' ears, but this is not how you learned Christ. This is not the gospel. When you give yourself to sin, you need to remind yourself and remind others around you and have others remind you that this is not how you learned Christ. When you settle and you see these benchmarks in this passage of don't steal, don't lie, do these different things, if you settle even for that as just boxes to tick, as morality, you need to hear shouted in your ear, that is not how you learned Christ. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. We need to give up our old life. We need to give up everything, and yet we gain more. The futility of trying to escape the old life on our own volition, it's futile. Who remembers those, like, finger traps that you put your fingers into, right? Do kids still have these, Ben? Do kids still have these things you put your fingers in? No, okay, maybe this is, this is an older thing. Well, adults, you know those finger traps? I'm sure you can still buy them. But you put your fingers into this tube, and you go to pull out, and then all of a sudden your fingers are stuck, and the harder you pull, the tighter it squeezes down on your fingers. You know what I'm talking about? Getting a lot of blank stares. Okay, a few people know what I'm talking about. That's the futility of trying to escape this old life on our own volition. We're trying to earn our salvation. We're trying to escape, and the harder we pull, the, the more it tightens down on our lives. And Paul's saying, that's not how you learned Christ. You've given yourself up to these things, but you need to give up this futile pulling. The real gospel, he says, is truth in Jesus, in verse 21. That's the good news. I like that he qualifies it. He says, but that's not the way you've learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Assuming you heard the real gospel, the actual good news. And this is true for us today. This is why when we are explicit about sharing the gospel in our services, it's not just for lost people. It is for lost people, but it's for all of us. It's to clarify, what is this good news we're going on about? What is the gospel? We, we can't assume that we've heard good news. There's, there's a lot of bad news that's painted really nice in a facade that looks like good news and is even called good news today. 
Look at the prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it. Even the soft prosperity gospel of just, you do you. It's, it's all about you, 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 you. Right? Or the progressive gospel where we just bend the gospel. We shape the gospel, not the gospel shaping us. And so this is what Paul is saying. Assuming that you've heard this, this is not the way you learned Christ. And love that he says that, as the truth is in Jesus. That's real freedom, real freedom from sin and bondage. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, if you don't know this freedom, if in futility you've lived your life pulling and trying to get your fingers out of that little finger trap, give up. But give it all to Christ. Trust in him alone for salvation. Today could be that day for you where you could trust in Christ and know this freedom, where you could know what a gospel-shaped life looks like, where you could know what a renewed life looks like. It's not a bailout scheme. It's not just, oh man, I'm headed down a bad path. I better, you know, jump off and hope for the best. This is a renewed life. We would love to talk to you more about what this looks like. Please come talk to us. And Christian, are you living a renewed life? Or are you living a life that would be much more characterized by ignorance or darkness or alienation or hard-heartedness or a calloused life? Are your eyes dark to the sin that you keep running back into with futility, thinking that you can beat it on your own? Are your eyes, ears, actions, or mouse clicks taking you places that you shouldn't be? Is anger or bitterness ruling your life? This is not how you learned Christ. But friend, Run to him. Run to him. You are to, as Paul writes, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Friend, run to Christ. Give up and give it all to Christ. Be renewed. The glorious doctrine of adoption is that we're adopted as God's children, that before the foundation of the world, he chose us to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. That's good news. But why do we take this good news, our identity in Christ, and we don't throw off the tattered and dirty, vile clothes that we wore in the orphanage of sin and destruction and depravity? Put on this new set of clothes, put on this new self and run into the arms of your father who loves you dearly. He calls you his own. 
we see this pictured so beautifully in baptism, this idea of putting off your old self, dying to your old self, and being raised again with Christ. Romans 6, 1 to 6 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you're a Christian here this morning and you have not been baptized, symbolically dying and being raised again with Christ, we would love to talk to you about that too. It's such a beautiful picture of what we're talking about here. Going public with our faith, identifying ourselves with Christ and his people. And that's a perfect picture of a renewed life. A renewed life. This starts to answer that question. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? The gospel-shaped life is a truly renewed life. And we see that that renewed life in verse 24, that, that putting on this new self isn't just putting on a new you. It's putting on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so our first truth we saw, the gospel-shaped life is a renewed life. And our second here, the gospel-shaped life is a holy life. The gospel-shaped life is a holy life. To be holy is to be set apart. God is holy and calls us, created in his image, to live holy and righteous lives. Now we talked about this. We can't. We, we can't measure up. We can't meet the mark. But our new life gives us righteousness, a righteousness that's not of our own. It's a new uniform we never deserved, but we get freely given to us because of Christ's righteousness. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. This is this new uniform we are to put on. And so our new life should reflect our God who gives it, who gives this new life. That's why Paul says, therefore, in uh, verse 25, because of this new self that you're putting on, created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness, therefore. And now he gets into the instruction, the moral guiding. Because we are to live holy lives, not for our glory, but for God's glory. Not to reflect a better self, but to reflect God and his character. And so verse 25, we see, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. He says, don't lie. Put away falsehood. But not just that. Put on truth. Don't just stop lying. You can do your best to stop lying. And again, we're just ticking that box of moral living. But why would we put on truth? Well, we already saw in verse 21, that bold statement, as the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. A gospel-shaped life is a truthful life. 
there's a theological reason behind these imperatives, behind these directions. It's not just be a better person. There's reasons why. And so stop lying. Start telling the truth. Why? Well, the truth is in Jesus. Satan is a liar. Jesus says he's the father of lies in John chapter 8. And so a life that reflects God's character is a truth-filled life. Verse 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now what Paul is not saying here is an encouragement to just be an angry person. Within this, the context of this passage, we know that that's not true. Later he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and all malice be done away. So we know that that's not true. To just be an angry person. That's not his exhortation. But we see that there's things that make our holy God, who we are to reflect, angry. Sin, evil, injustice. These things make God angry. And they should make us angry. To not be angry at the evil in the world is to endorse the evil in the world. So these things should make us angry. But before you take that and say, oh yeah, here we go, I'm angry now, and run with that, Paul gives very clear and careful instructions. He gives three warnings right after saying, be angry. First one, do not sin. That's that's a big one, and we get this wrong so often. You can be angry for right reasons and sin and, and, and do it the wrong way. I think we see this all the time angry do not sin next don't let the sun go down on your anger this isn't just don't go to bed angry that can be good advice he's saying don't let the sun go down your anger don't let it fester you know deal with it figure it out if there's sin in your life deal with that sin in your life if there's sin in someone else's life deal with the sin in their life if you're angry at sin in the world do something don't just let it fester and boil and it's not good don't let the sun go down on your anger And he says, don't give an opportunity to the devil. Satan wants to see you festering, harboring resentment, clothed in bitterness, not this new uniform of Christ-likeness. And he's going to seize that. So be careful. Be angry, but do not sin. Verse uh, Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Again, don't steal. That's a clear thing. Don't, don't do that. That's morals here. Don't steal. But work hard. Don't just stop stealing. Work hard. And don't just work hard for, you know, maybe we're like, ooh, this is, the ball's rolling here. I really like this. You know, hustle culture. Let's work hard. Well, work hard for the right reasons. Work hard for the glory of God. Work hard so that you would have something to share with other people. Don't just work hard for more what you can get. Me, 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 me. It's no different than stealing. It's not ours to begin with. John Wesley said it well, I think. Work as hard as you can. Make as much as you can. And then give as much as you can. Work as hard as you can. Make as much as you can. And give as much as you can. You take any of those out, the whole thing falls apart. And yet that's how we live our lives too often. A gospel-shaped life is a generous life. We have received more than we could ever imagine. And yet we steal, or maybe more likely for us, we hoard it to ourselves. What was never ours to begin with. 
So that's why an important and hard line to live up to in our church covenant is that we would give cheerfully, generously, and regularly the support of the ministry and the needs of our neighbors. A gospel-shaped life says not what can I get, but what can I give. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Corrupting talk. The word for corrupting means rotten, filthy, putrid, filthy language. Clean up your language. Paul goes in later, we'll see, Lord willing, next week, chapter 5, he says, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. So it is that. It is filthy, rotten, putrid talk. But we also see the contrast of this corrupting talk is words that build up, that give grace. And so be careful with your words. Words can tear down and they can build up. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. That's bogus. Words hurt. Words hurt a lot. And so we need to do away with gossip and slander and rotten speech. These things poison relationships. These things poison marriages. These things poison friendships. These things poison the church. Our words are like a loaded gun with the safety off in a crowded room. We need to be careful with our tongues. gospel-shaped life gives grace with our words. We need to give grace with our words. Then Paul adds in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is tied to verse 29, but all sins, not just our words, grieve the Holy Spirit. Scholars point out that typically when Paul writes of the Holy Spirit, he often just says spirit. Here, it seems to be intentional that he says Holy Spirit. Why would he emphasize the holiness in the Holy Spirit? Well, our unholy living grieves him who is perfectly holy. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. It's important here. The Holy Spirit is not impersonal. He's not a force, not a thing, but the third person of the Trinity And so to live an unholy life that doesn't reflect the character of the God that we are created in the image of and the Holy Spirit who indwells us is to grieve the Holy Spirit. A Holy Spirit-dwelt, gospel-shaped life reflects our God who is holy. And we can only do that by His help. But we still can't give ourselves up. As we saw in verse 19, we give ourselves up to these things. Verse 31 a tough one. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Friend, put away bitter cynicism. Put away anger and wrath, sinful anger. Put away clamor, angry shouting, outbursts. We've got a hot temper and then we use our words. We're starting to combine some of these imperatives together here put away slander lie telling gossiping abusive language and put away malice this desire to do evil and friend this includes everything this includes your interpersonal relationships this includes your relationships 
at the church. This includes your relationships in your home when the doors are closed. This includes online. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you along with all malice. Maybe we're nailing that when our mouths are open, but we're not nailing that when our fingers are flying. We need to put these away. These are the old life. Jesus is like that corrupting toss. This is not how you learned Christ. How have you learned Christ? What is a gospel-shaped holy life? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The gospel-shaped life is a renewed life. The gospel-shaped life is a holy life. And the gospel-shaped life is a forgiven life. Grasping the gospel and the forgiveness that's found in Christ changes everything. Changes everything. We have been shown kindness beyond measure, and yet our hearts prefer anger. Jesus embraces you with a tender heart, and yet our hearts are hard. They're calloused. God has forgiven you over and over and over and over and over, and yet our hearts refuse to forgive others. To grasp the gospel is to have a renewed life because that is how you learned Christ. You are to live a holy and set-apart life because God calls you to live holy lives because God is holy. And so we're to live holy and set-apart lives not for salvation but because of salvation. And the gospel shaped life is a forgiving life because you are forgiven this is so much better news than being moral being a good person the gospel is good news and the gospel shaped life changes everything don't leave this morning don't leave this morning carrying the weight of what you must do. Rest in the gospel. Rest in what Christ has already done. Let's pray. God, we are desperately in need of your help. When we come to a place where we reflect on the state of our hearts and the state of our lives, we realize how far we are from the mark of how we learned Christ. Father, we ask for your help that you would renew our hearts, that you would renew our lives, that by your help we would put off this old self and put on the new self. And that this new self would reflect you and your character, not for our glory, but for yours. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. And God, help us to live this gospel-shaped life that is a forgiven life. Help us every day to remember the good news of the gospel, to proclaim it to ourselves, 
to those around us, that our lives would be melted by the heat of the gospel and that we would be shaped and molded. Not that we would bend or come away with a list of rules, but would you break our hearts in the best way possible to know this truth more and more today than we even did when we woke up this morning and more tomorrow than we did today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.